0: Anyway, that was the synagogue. Can you see who's actually watching you right now? Nobody's not. Okay, good afternoon, and uh, welcome to today's class. Today we're going to be talking about the Torah reading of Bamidbar and of course the Festival of Shavuos that we'll be celebrating this week. Which brings us to reminder that this week Shabbos, Shabbos Parshav Bamidbar, which follows right away to the um, Festival of Shavuos, which is Sunday and Monday, Shavuos celebrates and commemorates the God giving us the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And that's the one of the three major festivals that are celebrated when the Jewish people in the time of the temple would have to go up in temple times to the Beis Igdash, just like Passover, Sukkot. So Shavuot is just as important as that holiday as well. And that is going to be this Sunday and Monday is the festival of Shavuot, 49 days or the 50th day after Passover. One of the things which mind boggling in the mental health community is that you have people who, so to speak, have everything they wanted in life. They have success, they have families and everything else, but still in all, they feel that they're lacking something. And they come to the doctor and say, Doctor, help me, I'm missing something. I got everything I want, I have a good family, I have a good job, I'm successful, I have got good renown, but still in all, I don't have the impetus, I don't have the excitement to wake up in the morning. There's something that's not firing me up. What is it that I'm lacking? And usually the best answer, which is that because many times people that are looking for the answer of what gives them the energy of life, what gives them fulfillment in life, is they're looking in the wrong places. Because we were brought up, seemingly, or society has brought up people to believe that fulfillment in life is when you're successful. When you make a lot of money. When you have a big house. When you have a big yacht. When you have a big job. When you have a nice retirement plan. Whatever it may be. And each one of them... Maybe and that might be the answer for finding happiness in life or finding fulfillment in life And many times not only is this the biggest mistake But this can also lead to people looking in the wrong places and focusing on the wrong thing So what we're going to talk about today Through the lens of the holiday of Shavuot and the Torah reading of Bamidbar Is to how we can find To make our Job in this world to know what it is and to make that a reality and how we can focus on what we are meant to do here and why we are here in this world. And sometimes the way to ask yourself is, what would you do if, let's say, money wasn't an object? What would you spend your time doing? What would you be involved with? How would you find fulfillment? Many times, yes, we have to go do a job or whatever it may be, you know, they say a story that was once the thief that he saw in the candy store that everybody would go get their candies and underneath the candy store, in the candy store, the guy had the cashier, you know, would keep all the money right underneath where all the candies are stacked up, you know, by the dr- register. And the thief thought of a plan. He calls over a kid and he says, do you want to have good candy? She says, yeah. Do you want to have good candy and I'll pay you for it? She says, of course, that's a good deal. He says, okay. At 4.15, you're gonna walk into the store. You're gonna grab a candy, the biggest one, off the cashier's place and stick your tongue out on him and let him chase you. And when you come out and he chases you, I'll give you a dollar for it. So, what does the guy do, what does the kid do? Of course, the kid says, I'll get a candy plus a dollar. He does that, he goes inside, and he grabs the biggest candy. The cashier starts yelling at him, hey, what are you doing? He says, it sticks out his tongue. And of course, the cashier dashes over over the, 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 the register. Meanwhile, tripping and knocking over all the money that was there. The thief runs in while the guy's chasing the kid, gets all the money from the draw, makes his job. What happened over here? What was the cashier's mistake? He was chasing a little candy, but in the end he comes back and he sees that his whole entire cash register is empty. Sometimes we chase the little things in life, chasing temporary or little things in life, and meanwhile, because of it, giving up on the greater things in life. We chase money, success or alleged success, and many times forgetting that there's a greater prize that's waiting for us. And today through analyzing and looking at the story of the festival of Shavuos, and looking at the Torah reading of Amidbar, and by asking our questions, and at the end of today's class, we will have a better understanding or inkling in how we can find what our job, our mission in this world is, and what it's meant to be, to be able to find fulfillment and happiness in life. So let's get to it. So one of the things that we read on Shavuos is it's called Megilas Rus, the scroll of Ruth, or the book of Ruth. In many synagogues, they read it after the reading of the Torah. Chabad custom is it's read, the night of Shavuos, when we read throughout different parts of the Torah, we read the book of Ruth. But why the book of Ruth? And the reason that's given is because Shavuos is the day that it's the yard site and birthday of King David. The Talmud says that King David told God, God, tell me when my life is going to be over. Tell me when I'm going to die. And God said, no, I don't let anybody know that. So he says, at least tell me what year, how old I'm going to be. He says, you'll be 70 years old. Tell me around what time, what day of the week it's going to be. He said, it'll be on a Saturday. And that's exactly what happened. That King David passed away on Shavuos, which was on a Saturday, when he was exactly seventy years old. King David, we are told, was a person of those righteous Jews, of those tzaddikim, who lived his life from beginning to end to exactly fulfilling every single day of his life. That died on the day that it was born. That shows that he was able to fill to live a full life. And for that reason, we read Ruth, the book of Ruth. Why the book of Ruth? Seemingly, the book of Ruth doesn't mention anything about King David. That is because, the commentary is explained, because the book of Ruth tells us about who King David's great-grandmother is. And being that this is a day that celebrates King David, therefore tells us where King David came from. As in the last verse of the book of Ruth, it says that Ruth gave birth to Yisha, to, Obed, to Obed, Obed, to Yisha, Yisha, to David. So we know that Ruth is King David's great-grandmother. And therefore, at a time when King David was born and the King David died, we talk about his lineage where he initially comes from. Others explain, as well as to tell us about Ruth's life, as Ruth was a convert to Judaism, so to us as the Jewish people on the time of the giving of the Torah, we also just be converted to Judaism as well. But even more so, when we look at King David's life, there's something very unique and something very wondrous. Who is this King David? So we know that King David was a person who compiled the entire book of Tehillim, the entire book of Tehillim which he compiled by divine intuition, that he was able to see the suffering that Jewish people may go through, see the celebrations that Jewish people will celebrate, and he compiled with King David. In fact, he didn't write all the Psalms, many of it was written by the children of Korach, by Moses, But with divine inspiration, he was able to compile these 150 chapters that for generations to come, and until today, this has become part and parcel of the fabric of Jewish life, that any time a Jewish person needs any type of help or salvation, he can turn to the book of Tehillim. As the third Chabad Rebbe once said about the book of Tehillim, if you would only, in the name of the Baal Shem Tov, if you would only know the power of the words of Tehillim, you would be saying it all day. That's how powerful the Book of Tehillim is, the Book of Psalms. So King David was no, uh, you know, just no kid just right off the street. He was a very powerful individual, and so on and so forth. But after knowing about the greatness of King David, at the same time, the Talmud tells us a very interesting thing. The Talmud tells us how much a person has to depend and rely on God not only depend on relying on God, but realize that everything that happens in his life is all by the manifestation of what God wants. And it takes over here two individuals, King Saul and King David. The first two kings of the Jewish people, they both made mistakes. King Saul made one mistake, boom, that's it. He lost the kingdom, it was given over to King David. King David made two mistakes, Oh, okay, two mistakes. And who did the kingdom follow to be? To King Solomon, his son. He wasn't torn away from his kingdom. What happened? What were these two mistakes? And why were these two mistakes when we came to King Saul? That he lost everything, but when it came to King David, it was as if nothing happened. Or if we'll soon see if as if nothing happened. He was still able to stay the king. We still recognize King David as the king of the Jewish people for eternity. Moshiach comes from King David and he is the lineage of King David as we know for generations to come. So what are the two episodes? So the episode of Saul, King Saul, was the famous story that we read in the Haftorah of the Parish of Zohar, where King Saul was told by Samuel the prophet that being that he was the first king of the Jewish people and the first thing on the agenda was to wipe out Amalek. He went and wiped out Amalek, but he did not listen to the letter of the law. God told him to wipe out Amalek every single individual, men, women, children, animals, everything. And he thought that it's better to keep the flock. Like this, they can bring them as sacrifices. King Sa- uh, the prophet Samuel comes and he asks King Saul, why do I hear sounds of flock in the background? He said, oh, I was thinking of bringing in a sacrifices. He says, but there weren't you told by God to destroy everything. And with that, Agag, the king of Amalek was still speared. King, the prophet Samuel kills him and he tells them, with this, Saul, you lost your right of being king. And that's it. And from then on, the kingdom of Saul was taken away. However, when it came to King David, King David did two major mistakes. One major mistake was that he counted the Jewish people Uh, turned to the end of his lifetime he wanted to make a count of how many people were there how many people were left in the war to go to war and because he counted people we know one is not supposed to count people that caused a bad eye and because of that there was a plague and many Jews died a second episode that happened before that which is a very famous episode of the sin of King David which is the story of Uriah HaChiti which was uh, his wife was Bathsheba and King David uh, saw Bathsheba, the woman Bathsheba, and he really liked her. However, she was married to Uriah Ahchiti. And at that point, he called Uriah Ahchiti. He called him from the, from the field and he asked, what are you doing? And because it was usual at that time that there was the custom that King David made that every single soldier before he went to war, would give a divorce to his wife just in case they would be killed in war or be captured in war and they wouldn't know where they were. So like this, their wives would be able to remarry and they would not be considered trapped in a marriage. So therefore, every single person before going to war, they would have to give a divorce. This was a situation where he called Uriah um, and he asked Uriah um, what's going on? And he told him that he should go to should go to his house to see what's going on. He was told Uriachiti to come to his house, and over here, Uriachiti refused, not only didn't refuse, but when he answered back King David, he prefaced by saying first the general Yoav, and only afterwards did he say King David, which according to Jewish law and according to the law at the time, that was considered rebelling against the king, because it was disrespect to the king. Disrespect to the king is liable of capital punishment. So over here. Uriah Hite was liable of capital punishment. So what did King David do? He sent them back out to the front, but he put him in the front, in the literal okay. front of everything, of everybody. And because of that, he was called in war. Once Uriah Hite was killed in war, King David was now able to marry Bathsheba. However, King David was punished for it. Why was King David punished or was it considered a sin? Nathan the prophet came and rebuked him for it. Why was it considered a sin? was because he, at the time even though technically Uriah Achiti was liable of capital punishment, but because he did not make any judgment, he did not convene a Bethin, a rabbinical tribunal, to decide what should be done, and he did it on his own, this caused that an uproar, and of course he was punished for it. Now, what was the punishment for it? We find that King David was not punished in a way that uh, he was stripped from his kingdom because of it, But he was punished in a personal way because of it. That means that his entire family was, so to speak, diminished. In a way, diminished that he only had problems in his family ever since then, starting with that the baby that Bathsheba was pregnant with at the time died. Number two, Amnon killed Tamar, which was a stepsister. had an affair with one of King David's wives, and then had King kicked King David out of his own home in Jerusalem, and was on the run until Absalom himself was killed. And only familiar problems ever happened since then. And to the extent that there had to be an infrastructure in the way that Bathsheba had to stand up for her son, who she later had King Solomon, and assure that he would be king because since there was other people trying to be king as well, so he didn't have a happy time since then. Over here, we see something very interesting. But at the end of the day, we know that King David himself accepted those punishments as a repentance for what he has done wrong. But the question that the commentaries have is why the difference? Why, over here, King Shul does one thing wrong, that's it. He's cut off his kingdom, he can't have it anymore. King David does two things wrong, and we don't see that his kingdom gets punished, but he only personally gets punished. And the Marshal, one of the commentators on the Talmud, explained something very interesting. That what King David made was the difference in the mistake of King Shul and King David is as follows. King Shul made a mistake in a decision. What should be done? King David made a, did not make a mistake on what should be done. He sinned in doing something wrong. Now you may ask, that's even worse. What did King Shul do? He didn't kill somebody. And because of that, he was punished. While King David went and killed somebody, and technically was not severed his kingdom, he was only personally punished. In fact, why does the prophet rebuke King David? What is could the prophet rebuke King David about? He tells him, imagine a, king, a person goes to this wealthy individual, and he has a hundred sheep. And the guy says, I want, to bring you a, a, I want to bring you a gift. So he goes to his poor neighbor, only as one lamb, takes his sheep, slaughters it, and brings it to the rich guy as a sheep. What would you say to that? King David said, I would make that guy pay five times the amount. Nathan the prophet looks at him and he says, you are that guy. You have so many wives. You have everything you need. And what do you do? You go take that one wife that a had. What was King David's response? I sinned. Now over here, the Talmud comes over here and says, the reason why the punishment was different was because of the response. What's the difference in the response? What does King David say when he is accused of what he's done? Mm-hmm. Does he justify it? Does he say, oh, but I'm the king, but he rebelled? Absolutely not. The first thing King David says is, I made a mistake, I have sinned. How do I correct this? How do I do go about it? King David recognizes that he made a mistake. He sinned. And because he sinned, he recognizes I have to repent. And therefore he recognizes that the punishment and the severity that's going to come to him is as a punishment for what he did wrong. In contrast to King Saul, what did King Saul do? King Saul doesn't say, I sinned. King Saul says, what do you mean, Why are there flock? I want to bring sacrifices to God. I didn't do anything wrong. Okay, I understand that's not what God requested. But wouldn't God appreciate all the sacrifices? Wouldn't you want to kill Agog yourself? The problem over here is, When a person doesn't realize that they made a mistake, there's no chance for that person ever doing it, for that person again. Why? Because they don't recognize they did something wrong. If you don't recognize you did something wrong, there's no chance in the world you're going to repent for it. Because you never did anything wrong. It's always somebody else's fault. That person caused me to do it. That person caused me to do it. When you don't own up to your own sins, then how are you going to expect to repent for it? This is the difference between King David and King Saul. King David was willing to accept that he did something wrong, and therefore accept at the same time that these terrible events that happened to his family at the end were as a punishment for what he did. And that's why if you look in Psalm 51 in the Tehillim, what does King David say? The chathasi, nagdi, summit, the sins that I've done will always be in front of me. He recognizes that what he did may have been a mistake, but what do you recognize? We all make mistakes. But at the same time, King Saul realized never was, never was willing to own up that he did something wrong. Another difference is in what they did and how the mistake was. What was King Saul's mistake? He was charged with a mission to wipe out Amalek. You're a king, you gotta do your job his mistake was how he governed king david's mistake was as a person and therefore when it came to king shaul the entire kingdom was taken away from him because he proved that he was not a, he was an inept leader because he wasn't able to make the proper decisions while when it came to king david's mistake it was a personal mistake and because it was only a personal mistake his kingdom is not severed he was personally punished because of it His personal mistakes don't have to do with the way he governs. What we see from over here is a very clear contrast to the concept of King David in the way his relationship with God and King Saul in his relationship and how he approached a sin. What is this telling us? Now that we have this in mind, let's take it to a next step. In 1955, was not probably not the first time, not the last time, but was one of the cases where there was a terrible, um, uh, the teachers then in Israel, the union of teachers as they have went on strike. Why did they get on strike? Because they wanted to get a better pay. What else, what's the reason why they go on strike? And there was a teacher strike. And at the time, uh, all the Chabad schools as well in Israel were part of the union of teachers, and they went on strike as well, or they were threatening to strike. At that time, The Rebbe sent a very strict letter to the teachers, to the Chabad teachers in Israel, as follows. And the Rebbe said the following thing. He says, "When you see, when what when you see from here is as follows: When a teacher teaches, it's not merely the words that they're teaching in front of the class that is going over and giving them as a message to the student, but it's the wholesome attitude that a teacher has." that comes into the classroom, which ultimately has an effect on the education of the students. Now the Rebbe says, when you have a teacher who says, you, Mr. So-and-so, owes me something, therefore I'm going to let it out on, some, on the third party, what kind of message is that giving to the students? You want to get a better pay from the government, so therefore the students are not going to learn What kind of effect is that going to have? On the contrary, that is not the best effect. Not only is it not the best effect, but a negative effect and everything that you're teaching will seem hypocritical. What kind of person is going to teach them that you're going to see that your fiduciary duty is to be teaching and educating the students, but because you have a gripe against the government, you're not going to be teaching. What was the Rebbe saying? the Rebbe continued. And he said, this is when we find something that the Talmud tells us. That even though King Sheol did one sin, he was cut off from his job and King David too, and was not, was because King Shoal did not follow his fiduciary duties in being a king. That means when it came to the sins of King David, even though they were much sinner, much worse because he killed somebody, so to speak, because of it, but that was not part of his fiduciary obligation. That was not part of his as in the words of the Hasidic dictum, it was not his mission in this world. He did not refrain or did not dissuade. He did not go away from his ultimate mission in this world. That means the way God looks at it in the perspective of what we have is that we need to make sure that we follow our mission. We stay true to what our purpose is in this world. We are all given a task in this world and a mission in this world. And the reason why King Shaul was punished because he was given a task to wipe out Amalek. Did he do his task? No. And because of that, he was punished. Is there a reason why he did it? His logic was because since he wanted to save the the animals for sacrifices. But at the the end of the day, but that wasn't what God told him to do, and therefore he was punished. So he had a logic behind it because he felt that he could bring sacrifices. What better sacrifices? But at the end of the day, what did King Saw, Samuel, what did the prophet Samuel tell him? God would rather that you follow what you're told and make up your own mind. Meaning, you gotta stay on on course, you gotta stay true to your mission, regardless of what you think. The same thing the Rebbe was telling the teachers at the time, yes, you're not getting paid from the government, yes, you got a problem with the government of how they're paying you, but what is your obligation to educate the students? What message is that giving to the students? Think about that. Are you accomplishing your mission? Is that your duty? You wanna get paid, you gotta find a way to do it. But this is, taking going, this is veering off mission. The same idea is also when we look around the world. There are no two people alike. There are no two people with exact same looks. There are no two people that think alike. And because of that, there are no two people that have the exact same mission in life. You can have two children born from the exact same parents, grew up in the exact same family, went through the exact same schools, went through everything exactly the same. Their nature seemingly says these people are destined to be both doctors, both lawyers, whatever it may be. But still in all, these two individuals have their unique mission in this world. Even more so. Even twins. Who are from genetically the same they still have a core mission differently. They found an interesting study. In 1974, there were these twins, Siamese twins that were born. They were both connect, they were Siamese twins that were connected at the head. They, everything in their life they did, they had to do together, they had no choice. But they were two opposite characters. One was an introvert, one was an extrovert. One wanted to explore, one wanted to say, but, but they couldn't do it because they were connected. Finally, when they were about 27 years old, they really wanted to be independent, And they went for a surgery, and unfortunately, the surgery was in Singapore, and it didn't survive, and they died. But what you see from over here is, you see two individuals, though they were connected, and they did everything exactly the same, there was nothing one that the other didn't do, still they each had their core mission, their individuality that they wanted in this world. And therefore, we learn from here something so important, that every single individual, regardless of how you're brought, and regardless if you go through the debate of nature versus nurture, whatever your mission may be, your core value, your core mission in the world as an individual is yours and nobody else's. The Talmud in Sanhedrin says as follows, why did God create Adam as one? Every other thing he created in the universe, he made multiples. When God created trees, it wasn't just one tree, it were multiple trees, multiple grass, multiple animals, multiple, those are everything. The only thing that was created singular was the human being. Why was, one, why was a person created a singular? Why was a human being created singular? So the Talmud tells us as follows. To tell us that if a person destroys one life, it's if it destroyed an entire world. But even more so, the Talmud says. The Talmud says to look at it this way. You can have a person that can make, you can take one piece of metal, stamp it identical, And all the coins will come out identically exactly the same. They will be the same size, the same width, the same measurement, the same picture on it, everything exactly the same. But look at God. God created every single person, unique, separate, different. Why? The Talmud says. Because every single person is obligated to say, the world was created because of me. What does that mean? Not in an egotistic way. That means I have an obligation that if I don't do my diligent duty into the world, the world will cease to exist. I have a mission to accomplish. God wants that every single person should say to himself, I am the first of my kind. There is nobody before me like me, and there will be nobody after me like me. Every person is exactly who they are, uniquely created for the divine mission that they can do. Every person, one person can be a lawyer, it bur- can be an accountant, a doctor, you can have the same jobs. But there's nobody that can do your job. There's nobody that can do your mission. You are the first created with this specific mission since the time of Adam and Eve. And even Adam and Eve were not like you. You have your divine and created mission. And therefore, when you have an entire person, when you have an, an entire humanity of so many people, it's not like just a big flock of sheep that they all just walk in the herd and do everybody does the same exact thing. But everybody has their exact same, exa- I'm sorry, their unique, specific purpose that they have to accomplish. And over here it tells us the difference between King David and King Saul. King Saul, what was his sin? His major sin was that he was given a core mission to do and he failed. King David accomplished his mission. He may have had troubles, mistakes along the way. But from his perspective, his core mission, he did in this world. As we see in the till the day he died, he followed every single thing. He was born and died the same day to teach us that as a person, as, a, as what his job was in this world, as in his life and as in his kingdom, it was complete. Why? Because when he sinned, it didn't take away from his mission that he ought to accomplish. It may have gave him challenges along the way, He may have had setbacks, but it didn't deter him, and it didn't take away from his ultimate mission. There's an interesting story. There's once this rabbi who was saying, giving this class about telling people about their core mission in this world, is Rabbi Ashkenazi in Israel. And he was giving this class about saying how each person has their unique mission, and quoting, as we mentioned many times from the Baal Shem Tov, that it could be a soul comes into this world for 70, 80 years just to help somebody cross the street. After the class, a fellow comes over to him and he says, uh, how are you, whatever, and they're just having a chat. And he says, I just want to tell you that this class hit home to me. So he says, what do you mean? He says, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm still wearing my scrubs. He was a doctor. He was an uh, OBGYN. And he says, I'm just coming right now from the hospital. He says, I was about to leave the hospital. And all of a sudden, there was a code red came. That there was a lady giving birth. And I had to go around and do it. But this lady that was giving birth, she had some crazy situation that happened, and we had to work a long time in a surgery to save her life and save the life of the baby. He says in my 30 years being an OBGYN, this is the first time I ever had such a case. I studied this case, I took an extra fellowship in this case 30 years ago, but I never had to do the case. And this finally I did this case. He says the, the, the miracle here is that it was five minutes before I left. It would have happened 20 minutes later, the next guy in call never did that fellowship. He wouldn't know what to do. He says, now I realize what the Baal Shem Tov said, that a person can come to this world 70, 80 years for one core mission. I studied this for 30 years. I never did it before. But here was my chance, my one chance. Wow. After that, he said, now I can retire. <laughs> and he retired after that. Wow. We see over here the same idea. The same idea we find also in the Megillah. Look in the Megillah. There's an interesting part in the Megillah where Mordechai tells Esther when they're having this whole conversation and in in, you know, important story. Esther tells Mordechai, we realize a terrible decree for the Jewish people. Mordechai says, you got to go into Achashverosh. Esther says, how can I go talk to Achashverosh? I wasn't called in 30 days. I walk in. He doesn't like me off of my head and nothing happens. What does Mordechai tell her? Got to go in. Even if it means a matter of life and death. One second. Why should she risk her life? If she kills herself, she won't be able to save the Jewish people. But Mordechai uses the poignant words and he says as follows. In Hebrew, he said in the words of the Megillah, Who knows if this is the only reason why you were chosen to be the queen? What was Mordechai telling her? You can be here, you can do a lot of good things 10 years before and 10 years after. But if this is your core mission... And you lose out, what's the point of all of it? You lost it all because you missed on doing what your job is meant to be. And therefore he tells Esther, who knows, maybe this is the entire reason why you were chosen. This is the only reason why you were chosen to be queen. So is it a matter of life and death? Absolutely. But guess what? Maybe this is the reason to purpose you were here. In the words of the Rebbe, how he puts it, is that every single person has a job that God gave him in this world. There can be one person, his job can be to be a merchant, to be a lawyer, to be a doctor, to be an accountant, to study Torah. Every single person has a job and a task that God gave him in this world that only he can do, that nobody else can do. And what is our job? To make sure that we do it, that we stand up to the task. How do we know what our job is? Therefore, we got to do everything. And everything that comes our way, we got to be able to make sure not to, not to uh, lose the opportunity or exploit the opportunity. And making sure we're telling the Jew it is your job to make your area a holy place. Make it the land of Israel. Make it wherever you are a holy place. Which brings us to the next step of this week's Torah reading, which is the Parsha of Bamidbar. The Parsha of Bamidbar, which we read this week, is all about counting the Jewish people. And it's interesting to note that the Talmud says we always read it before the holiday of Shulis. And it's brought in code of Jewish law as well, that we always read the Torah reading of, Sh- of Bamidbar before the holiday of Shuvuz. And the question is, what is the Torah reading of Has to The Torah reading of Bamidbar has to do with the festival of Shuvuz. So if we look at the Torah reading of Bamidbar, any person that looks at the next few Torah readings, actually, mm-hmm. one would call it maybe a little boring. There's a few good stories in there, but most of it is numbers. How many Jews, where they went, what they did, and all the counting, they count them once, they count them twice, they count them according to their flags. then it says, this week's total reading." They count them first, and it says how many people and according to where they were set up, in their camping, in the actual uh, how they went according to their tribe, and each tribe had a flag, and each one how they were situated around the holy temple and so on. So each tribe had a unique flag. So for example, by Reuven, it had a flag and on the flag there were flowers. By Shimon, there was a flag and on the flag there were the, the stones. And, on the, and by Levi, you know, each one, had, each one had a special flag. What was the reason that each one had to have a flag? You know, today every state has a flag, every city has a flag, every town has a flag, every country has a flag. But what was the purpose of the flags and where did these flags come from back then? Some say that the actual flag color was the same color of their stone on the breastplate of the Kohen Gadot. But the flags, the Talmud says it a very interesting, the Medrash says a very interesting thing, that when the Jewish people were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, they saw the angels, 22,000 angels came, and they were all in groups with flags. Every group of angels had a flag in front of them. When the Jewish people saw the angels, because everybody came by the giving of the Torah, by the Ten Commandments, it wasn't just the Jews, but the entire... Great spiritual atmosphere tribunal from above came to give the Torah to the Jewish people. So, and they were all there with their sections and flags. When the Jewish people saw the flags, they said, hey, we also want those flags. And when God gave them then to build the tabernacle and he counted the Jewish people, they were given the task and they were given that choice that they asked for to have the flags. So the question is, number one, why is God counting the Jewish people? doesn't know how many there are. we are not supposed to count. But God, so we didn't count the people. They counted coins. But what was the, why did God have to know a number? He didn't know, he didn't know how many. God knows how many people there are. And even more so, what was this that they, wow, they saw flags, you know, and all of a sudden they wanted flags. What did they see so unique in it? What's the concept of a flag? So the flag, when they showed on the, each, why did each group of angels have flags? Was to show what was the purpose of, of their group of angels. This group of angels had one purpose and it was symbolized by their flag. This group of angels had another flag and it was, per- and it was symbolized by their flag. What well, the Jewish people wanted and recognized that they saw how each aim the same way every angel has its contribution and its point and reason, they wanted also to see their contribution, their point of being, their reason of being in this world. Every single individual has a unique purpose in this world. And how is this brought out? By the concept of a number. When each person is counted, one number is never the same as another number. Each person is their unique number. And by God counting the Jewish people, what he was saying is that we're all part of the Jewish nation. But yes, we are part, but as individuals, every unique person has the ability to recognize that he has a certain quality that he has to contribute to the world, even more so. How does one know what their quality is? Because we all, are, all have our God-given talents, and God, by divine providence, brings us to a certain place. And we need to make sure to utilize our God-given talents in the place where we are. So when we come to a specific area, and when we come to a specific place, we have to ask ourselves, Am I using my God-given talents in this specific place to be able to bring godliness here? And this, is what the, and this is the question and the answer that one that always has to ask himself and begs to give. And now you may ask, How do I know what my mission in this world is? Very simple. The thing that comes to you most difficult, that is your core mission. Why? Where do we see this? By the first person. The first human being. Look at Adam and Eve. They couldn't hold themselves in even for three hours. Why was it so difficult? Why could they not eat from the tree of knowledge? They had an entire orchard they were able to eat from. They were able to eat from the tree of life. Everything. But the tree of knowledge they couldn't eat from. And that was the most difficult. Because again, that was their core mission. To be able to overcome the three hours of not eating the tree of knowledge. And because of that... They were not able to see, uh, withhold it. The same is also given to every single one of us. Every single one of us has a <coughs> unique quality and a new, unique talent and a new gift that is to this world. Not only to this world, but to the time and place that they're in. And when they use it properly, they're bringing about the beauty and the purpose and the reason of why they're here. We all have our core mission and this is brought about with the festival of Shavuos together with the Torah reading of Bamidbar. When God counts the Jewish people, He's counting them and saying, you are number one and you are number two, because two is not like one and one is not like two, because every person has a core mission. And then when they're set according to camps, in their camping and they have a flag is to say yes, what is this flag resembling? That this place where you are has a mission that you ought to accomplish. So you may have accomplished a mission here in one place, but now that you move to a second place, you now have to see how can I use my talents, my qualities, my abilities to be able to enhance and achieve and bring this place also to a greater spiritual force. Wow. And then as we move along and as we come to the festival of Shur, where did this all happen? When the people were given the Torah at Mount Sinai by Shavuos, they saw that beautiful opportunity where every single unique person is given. You are given to God. God so tells us, you are my chosen nation. Chosen meaning that I chose you to be the ambassadors of the world and there are no two ambassadors to the world. No two ambassadors the same. You need to be the ambassadors of light, of kindness, of goodness and spirituality into the world. And the reason why I made multitudes, it's not because you're all the same, it's because you're all unique and different. They say a story that there was a very famous um, musician and composer and a conductor, conductor, a very known in Italian uh, conductor, name is Toscanini, right? You know him? Yes. Okay. So Tuscanini once, uh, they, were, they were writing a biography about Tuscanini. And the writer of the biography wanted to make a meeting with him to talk to him about his biography, about his life. So he says, I can't meet you today because I'm very busy. He says, what are you busy with? He said, I wrote this whole piece for an orchestra and it's, I can't be there. So I want to listen to, I'm going to be listening to it over the radio to see how they play to make sure it does well. So the writer says, that will be amazing to part of your biography. If I can watch and you are listening to a piece of music that you composed, that will be unbelievable. So he goes to Toscanini's home, he's listening to it, and during the thing Toscanini's going with his head, nah, it's, it's not it, it's not it. He's looking at him, he says, what do you mean it's not it? So he says, I wrote this piece for a 120 piece orchestra, 15 violins, and there's only 14 violins. So the, the, the editor, the author is looking at Toscanini, he says, I don't understand. You're listening over here on the radio. How do you know that there's only 14 violins? So he did a little research. He called up the place. And they said, yes, there was only 14 violins. The person with the 15th violin wasn't able to come in. So uh, so he asked Toscanini, how did you know that there was one violin missing? So Toscanini looks at him and he says, you don't understand. You are just... The difference between me and you, Toscanini tells him, is... You're just one of the audience. You hear the music, to you it all sounds the same. I wrote the music. I know what's missing and what's there. The same idea is also the first Chabad Rebbe teaches us in Tanya that in every single thing in the world there's a spark of godliness that has to be uplifted. God wrote the music. He knows what's within each one of us, that we have our core mission. And if one of us is missing, he notices it. Every single one of us is important. Every single purpose that we have given is important. We can't all of a sudden say, yeah, don't worry, there's another 600,000 people doing it. I'll just sit back and go on vacation. Absolutely not. Every single person is important to the mission and unique that God craves for their individual potential talent and creation in this world to be able to join God in making this world a better place. So let us make sure as we get to Shavuos, Reaffirm that promise and commitment at the Ten Commandments to stand up to our flag, to our core mission, to our talents, and not let our talents and qualities that God gave us fall to the wayside.